Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon supporters of the Islamic History Podcast. And we are covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, also known as the Sira. And we are on Sira episode number 37. Now, just a quick recap of the last episode. We discussed the aftermath of the Battle of Hunain. Uh, the Hawazin, whom the Muslims fought in the Battle of Hunain, mostly accepted Islam. Also, in the last episode, we discussed how Malik ibn Auf, who was from the Thaqif clan, the primary clan in Ta'if, which was where this uh, uh, the this whole idea of fighting the Prophet came from, mostly from the city of Ta'if, about uh, 50, or so, 50 or so miles from uh, Mecca. Malik ibn Auf, he was the military commander for the Thaqif clan of the city of Ta'if. And Malik ibn Auf, after the Muslims had lost, the Prophet ﷺ convinced him to accept Islam. And after Malik ibn Auf accepted Islam, he began to fight against his people, the Thaqif, on behalf of the Prophet ﷺ. This is a way of the Prophet basically weakening his enemies by dividing them. And nothing wrong with that. We also discussed how the Prophet divided the spoils of the Battle of Hunain and also from the Siege of Ta'if. He, he uh, did hold a brief siege against the city of Ta'if. The Ansars, after the Prophet had divided the spoils, the Ansars were a little upset at first about not getting much of anything uh, from the spoils. But then the Prophet explained his reasons for doing so and then, remind, and then reminded them of their close relationship. And that pretty much settled things between the um, Ansars and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So now we are going to continue. Now we are in the ninth year of the Hijrah. This year is also known as the year of delegation. And now many tribes from around Arabia began voluntarily accepting Islam. Now many of them accepted Islam because they did truly have belief in the principles and in concept and the ideas of Islam. Many of them did it for political reasons. They were convinced that uh, this growing force of Muslims was was the, the one to be a part of after the conquest of Mecca. Once the Quraysh had joined them, they figured it would, it would be expedient for them, politically at least, to go ahead and catch this train and jump on board and go along with it. And there were other tribes who did it for other reasons, and we'll get into that eventually. So these tribes, as they began entering into Islam, they began sending delegations to Medina in order to accept Islam. And uh, even though most of the delegations that came to Medina, these delegations that represented various tribes around the Arabian Peninsula, most of them did accept Islam, but not all of them. There were several non-Muslim delegations who did not who did not accept Islam. They had no intention of converting Islam. They just converting to Islam, I should say. They just wanted to avoid confrontation with the Muslims, and so they were pretty much pledging their allegiance to the Prophet sallallahu without necessarily changing their beliefs. And the Prophet allowed them to do that. However. Some of these non-Muslim delegations who did meet with the Prophet and who went away, uh, who had no, who did meet the Prophet with no intention of accepting Islam, none of them. Some of them still converted to Islam while they were in Medina, 
So, and we'll get into uh, some of the things that convinced them to accept Islam soon. None of these delegations, however, and none of these non-Muslim delegations were forced to accept Islam. They just had to proclaim that they would maintain peaceful relations with the Muslims, and they also had to promise not to hinder the growth of Islam. And all of the delegates who visited Medina, Muslim or non-Muslim, whether they accepted Islam or not, the Prophet gave all of them gifts, sort of as a way of easing the transition into this growing Muslim empire. And notice, I don't want to say khilafat or caliphate. It was not a really a caliphate just yet. Caliphate means to succeed. It's also By succeed, I mean to come after something else. And so Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, was called Khalifatul Rasul, the successor of the messenger. And from that point on, the phrase Khalifa came to be known as the ruler of the Muslim world. But at this time, the prophet didn't really, um, he didn't succeed anyone. There was no um, prophet before him that he picked up the mantle for and carried it on, and carried it on, so to speak. So I don't, I'm hesitant to use the word for uh, caliphate or khilafah in relation to the prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Mostly for technical and religious reasons. I don't want to say the prophet succeeded anybody. I'm reluctant to say something like that, as if uh, he was just picking up the banner from somebody else and just carrying on, carrying it on. So anyway, carrying on now with the rest of the story. So about 70 delegations came to Medina in this year. And by visiting Medina, these delegates, they got to see that they were part of a bigger community. Remember, these delegates who were coming to Medina, they weren't just coming to make nice with the prophet and, and talk to him and get to know him. They were coming basically to give him bayah, to give, give him the pledge of allegiance, to submit to his rule. And so once they came to Medina, they got to see that they were part of a bigger community because there were most likely, almost certainly other delegations there when they came. They got to see the prophet there and the Sahabas and the companions and all these people from all these different tribes. Sahabas and companions, same thing, right? All these people from all these different tribes because it wasn't just the Ansars anymore. You still had the Muhajirun. You had people from all over the Arabian Peninsula and all these tribes who never really mixed before except for on the Hajj. Now they're all coming together and working for the same cause. And these delegates, pretty much everybody in the Arabian Peninsula and pretty much throughout the region, not just the Arabian Peninsula, North Africa and and Persia and parts of Europe even, by now everybody had heard of Islam. They had heard of Prophet Muhammad They knew about Islam. They knew about the conflict between the Muslims and the Quraysh and all the fighting that had been going on for so long. But they really didn't know much about the religion, the faith of Islam in and of itself. And so when they got to Medina, they finally got to see Islam in practice for the first time. And this is what convinced many of these non-Muslim delegates who came to Medina with no intention of accepting Islam, simply wanted to make peace with the Prophet and make sure that they had uh, some sort of accord with them. Many of them went away having accepted Islam. So this was a period of relative peace. Relative. There is still some fighting, which we will probably have to tackle in a in a future episode, not today. But because most of the Arabian Peninsula had accepted Islam or they had come to some sort of terms with the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, there was it was relative peace now in the Arabian Peninsula. 
Now, some of the de- these delegations that came to Medina, some of them had ulterior motives. As we mentioned, some of them just wanted to be part of a new rising power. And many of them, when they came to negotiate their um, their acquiescence or their submission to the prophet, many of them wanted to negotiate or try to um, obtain excuses from the prophet for certain Islamic practices. And uh, I guess some of them had an idea of horse trading. We'll accept Islam, but we don't want to do this. Can you give us uh, permission to still do this thing, which you guys are forbidden to do? And can we be get, get some sort of abstention from this sort of thing? And that wasn't necessarily happening. The prophet generally refused all of these requests. And we'll get into some of them in a finer detail a little, a little bit later on. There are also several tribes coming from Yemen, and if you know your geography, you know that Medina is towards the north of the Arabian Peninsula, while Yemen is the very south of the Arabian Peninsula. The Prophet ﷺ has sent two companions, Musab ibn Jabal and Abu Musa al-Ashari, to Yemen to spread Islam there, and they had been fairly successful. And so many of these tribes they sent delegations back to medina to learn more about islam to get to know the prophet see who their who their prophet was get to know him and so these people in yemen uh, many of these tribes in yemen they had converted willingly they weren't uh, they weren't forced to do so they weren't doing so because they had um they are trying to catch on to the new uh wave of rising wave of islam they wanted to be most of the prophets sent people down there to preach to them, to companions, and they, for the most part, converted willingly. One delegation that came up from Yemen was from a clan called Banu Tayyib, and they brought their zakat back to Medina, and they wanted to offer it to the prophet, sort of like as if it was tribute. And the prophet told them, no, take it back to your home and share it among your own people. Shows you that zakat, and there's probably a lot more to this, but in many Many Muslim governments, of course, after the Prophet, they use zakat as a form of tax for helping the government. And certainly, zakat has that purpose to a certain extent. That's not, I'm not denying that. But as you can see here, the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, specifically told them to take it back to their land in Yemen, hundreds of miles south, and use it for their people. And it wasn't just to be, it wasn't just to be sent to the capital, which was Medina at this time. So for the prophet to do as he, as he wanted to with it, he told him to take it back. Something to understand there. Anyway, um, but the, the tribe, um, the delegate, de- delegates from Banu Tayyib, they said that uh, this was excess zakat. They have given everyone in their community, in their, in their tribe who deserved it. And they still had a lot left over. And so they bring it to the prophet. In truth, I don't know what happened to it, if the prophet accepted it or if he sent it back. But just want to point that out there that uh, this tribe did that. Just a little interesting story. There's another Yemeni tribe, however, that was called uh, Banu Hadith ibn Ka'ab. They had rose up against the Muslims. They never, they had never accepted Islam. They had never um, had any sort of peaceful accord with the Muslims. They just saw this, I don't want to call it Muslim empire, but I can't think of a better phrase, this Muslim dominion growing up all around them. And so they rose up to fight against the Muslims. And so the Prophet ﷺ had sent Khalid ibn Walid down there with a force to fight them back. 
But when Khalid ibn Walid arrived, Banu Hadith ibn Ka'ab, they decided to accept Islam all of a sudden, and they did so without any bloodshed, without any fighting, without being forced to do so, without without any threats. And so, one of their one of their delegates came up also. They sent a delegation as well along. They returned actually returned to Medina with Khalid ibn Walid and his army. And so, when this delegation from Yemen that returned to Medina with Khalid ibn Walid, when they met with the Prophet. They were actually kind of bold in their communication with the Prophet. They said that they weren't going to thank him nor Khalid ibn Walid for bringing them into Islam. Instead, they said that we're only going to thank Allah and all praises and thanks are due to Allah. And the Prophet, he he agreed. He said, you've spoken the truth and he didn't try to correct them or anything like that. And so that was that. There's also another tribe we want to speak of, which was called the Bani Asad. They were from northern Arabia. They sent a delegation to Medina, uh, and they were boasting about coming to the Prophet before he came to them. Uh, I guess they kind of figured that they were doing the Muslims a favor in a way. Any, anyway, in response to that, Allah revealed the verses from Surah Al-Hujrat, and especially we can encapsulate in chapter 49, verse 17, which is what Surah Al-Hujrat is. I'll say the English. You can look up the Arabic if you want. Uh, the English, which translates to, They considered it a favor unto you that they have embraced Islam. Say, do not consider your Islam a favor to me. Rather, Allah has favored you in that he's guided you to belief if you are truthful. And so this was just a repudiation of these, uh, this Bani Asad clan. Well, I guess it's a tribe, the Bani Asad tribe repudiating them, thinking that they were doing the Prophet a favor by accepting Islam. So now we get to one of the biggest problems or biggest issues, which was Banu Thaqif. Banu Thaqif, as we mentioned near the beginning in the recap of last episode, Banu Thaqif was a primary tribe from the uh, city of Ta'if. Now they had resisted Islam from the very beginning, just as long as the as the Quraysh had, even longer now because the Quraysh, the Quraysh at least by this time, the Quraysh had capitulated and accepted Islam. From the very beginning, before the Prophet even made the Hijrah, he went to the Thaqif, went to Ta'if, trying to spread the message there, and they treated him rudely and even tried to kill him. The Thaqif were also the primary organizers behind the events of the Battle of Hunayn. After the Prophet conquered Mecca, the Thaqif tribe teamed up with their allies, the Hawazin, and basically initiated a fight against the Muslims. Even after that battle, after they had lost, after the Hawazin converted, after Malik ibn Auf, their, their general, had converted, they continued to resist the Prophet and continued to resist Islam. So you can see that other than the Quraysh, the Thaqif tribe were very, I don't want to say anti-Muslim because they eventually did convert, obviously, Taif is a Muslim city now, but they were some really determined enemies of the Muslims and of the prophets of Allah. Here's, a, here's an example of just how determined they were to resist the prophet. One of their people, a man named Urwa ibn Mas'ud, a Thaqafi, Urwa ibn Mas'ud, he was from the Banu Thaqif, he was from Ta'if. 
he on his own while the prophet was uh, just basically wrapping things up after the battle of Hunain. Odwa ibn Masud, he decided to accept Islam on his own. So as the prophet was departing Mecca and heading back to Medina, Odwa ibn Masud, he caught up with the prophet, he returned to Medina with the prophet, and then he accepted Islam when he, uh, when he returned to Medina with the prophet, and he stayed there. So this was an indication that even though the Thaqif had been resisting the Prophet and fighting against him and doing all these bad things against him for so long, their resolve was beginning to weaken. And so it is a very likely chance that Urwa wasn't the only person within the city of Ta'if that wanted to leave, but perhaps they just couldn't for various reasons. In any case, Odwa ibn Masud, he stayed in Medina for some time, learning Islam from the Prophet, but eventually he asked the Prophet for permission to return to his people. He was hoping that he would be able to preach Islam to his people and maybe bring them into the fold in a peaceful manner. But the Prophet was reluctant to let him go. The Prophet understood the animosity the Thaqif had for Islam and how long they had been resisting him, how long they had been fighting him. And so he was afraid that if Odwa went back and they found out that he had converted to Islam, that they would kill him. But Odwa was uh, basically saying that my people love me. He replied that my people love me. They would never do that to me. They would not hurt me like this. Uh, at most, maybe I might get exiled, but they're not going to kill me. Come on. So the prophet reluctantly let him go and Odwa seems to have had a uh, some sort of leadership position within Ta'if that's another reason why he found it unbelievable that his people would try to harm him because not only was he a beloved member he was also a leader among them so eventually the prophet relented and he allowed Odwa ibn Masu to return to Ta'if Odwa returned and then he began to preach Islam to his people. He, would, he went to his balcony of his house. Presumably he had a two-story house, something like that. He went to his balcony so he could like see over the people, call them, gather them, and began to preach Islam to them. When the people heard about this, they started shooting arrows at him. And they shot arrows at him until he was struck down. And so the prophet's fears came to reality. So as Orwa laid there, arrows sticking out of him, bleeding to death. His family rushed to his side and they're asking him, what does he want them to do? And by this, they wanted to know if he wanted them to go and get revenge for his death. This is that, once again, that tribal Arab society where wars can spark up very quickly if someone's relative is killed. And so they're asking Odwa to give them some direction. If he wants them to go and avenge his death. But Odwa said that, he replied saying that dying for Allah was an act of honor. He didn't want his family to go to war for him and he didn't want them to avenge his death in that way. So this was an honor and remember he's bleeding and dying out now or I guess dying and bleeding out, bleeding out now. Anyway, he said that he was no different from the others and many other companions and martyrs who had died uh, for the prophet's message and we've been through many of them throughout this series. So Odwa eventually died from the arrow wounds. And after he died, his son and his cousin, who may have already accepted Islam, I think they may have already accepted Islam. Anyway, they snuck out of the, out of the city, Ta'if, 
traveled to Medina and accepted Islam officially at the hands of the Prophet and stayed there for a while. So now Urwa is dead and the people of Thaqif, now they begin to worry about their condition. They're looking around and they're seeing that things really are going great for them. Just about every tribe around them had accepted Islam. So from their perspective, they're surrounded by the enemy. We mentioned how uh, I think two episodes ago in the siege of Taif after the prophet had defeated them, the Taif and the Hawazin, I'm sorry, sorry the Thaqif and the Hawazin during the battle, battle of Hunain, he chased the Taif back to the Thaqif back to their city of Taif, which was a walled city where they had gates and walls. They barred the doors and the gates to the city and they huddled up inside and the prophet laid siege to the city for a couple of weeks, but the Muslims weren't able to, to break through their barriers. We mentioned the uh, rudimentary um, battering utensils that the Muslims had and the catapults and, and battering rams that they had at the time. And they weren't able to break and eventually break through the, the uh, Thaqif defenses and eventually the Muslims called off the siege. But when they called off the siege, well, as they called off the siege, or I guess more correctly, while they were besieging Ta'if, the Prophet ﷺ converted the tribes or the small tribes surrounding the city. And so now the Thaqif within the city of Ta'if found themselves surrounded by, from their perspective, once again, enemies. On top of that, their own military commander, Malik ibn Auf had accepted Islam, and after he had accepted Islam, as we mentioned earlier, he was constantly raiding their herds and their caravans, and he was such a force against them that they couldn't even leave their city without fear of being attacked by Malik ibn Auf. And so they saw that they couldn't fight the entire Arabian Peninsula, and on top of all these problems, they had just killed one of their own. And they're probably thinking the same thing I mentioned earlier. Who knows how many people within their own, within their midst had accept has secretly accepted Islam? What are they going to do? Have a purge and kill every single uh, Muslim or suspected Muslim within their city? They kind of realized that their options were very limited. So another leader from among the Thaqif named Abdul Abdul Yalil, he decided to lead a delegation to Medina and meet with the Prophet. What he wanted to really do, I don't think he was really concerned about accepting Islam. Maybe he was, but I don't think he was based upon the narrations. But it seemed as if he wanted to avoid um, the eventual confrontation with the Muslims. But judging from the story, it seems as if he didn't have the full support of his people behind him. So he didn't want to be killed like Odwa ibn Mas'ud had. So he had to take extra precautions to make sure his people didn't turn against him once they found out that he had gone to Medina. And so he began discussions with another one of the leaders, kind of secretly, actually, and they decided to travel to Medina and independently, they began to build a delegation to travel to Medina. They were doing this kind of secretly because these two men, these two leaders from Thaqif, they were from two different tribes within Thaqif and they didn't really like each other, but they kind of worked together in order to, in order to um, resolve a common problem that they had. And so Abdul Yalil, the guy who started this thing, this whole, this whole idea, 
He eventually gathered five men to travel with him for a total of uh, total delegation size of six. There are two main clans in Taif. One one clan was called Banu Malik. One clan was called Banu Ahlaf. Abdul Yalil was from Banu Ahlaf, which was the same clan that Odwa ibn Masud was from. And so Abdul Yalil, he took two more men from Ahlaf, and then he took three from Banu Malik. And he hoped, his hope was that if the people were upset with him, that these uh, other five men would be enough to protect him. Not to mention, um, since it was kind of balanced between both clans, people would have to make up their minds that they're going to kill their own people. So by bringing a mixed delegation, including by including members from both clans, he was hoping to insulate himself from any sort of um, repercussions if the people happened to dislike what he what he did. In any case, Abdiyalil and the delegation from Taif, they finally traveled to Medina. When they got to Medina, uh, right outside the doors of Medina, they met with one of, one of the Sahaba, a companion named Murida ibn Shu'ba. And just so you know, this is now Ramadan 9AH. This is the year, uh, ninth year of the Hijrah, month of Ramadan, ninth month of the year. So we mentioned how the Battle of Hawazin was, I think, in Ramadan also around that time. And so this is now a year after that they have been going through all this. Now, this companion, Mughira ibn Shaba, he was also from the Thaqif tribe, but he had converted to Islam many years earlier. And this is a little bit off topic, but Mughira ibn Shaba is a, is a strange character, a very puzzling character. There are many stories about him long after the prophet's death especially during the conflict between the um between the umayyas and the sharia the uh, sharia to ali or the partisans of ali and there are some stories of him committing some atrocities and during season two of the islamic history podcast i ran across these stories but i was reluctant to discuss them because i couldn't find any corroborating evidence outside of of um tarikhatabari my main book and what I find also puzzling and once again I'm going way off topic here but I'll get back on it now Mughira ibn Shu'ba there are several narrations several hadith narrated by him quite a few at the same time I I have lots of books on the companions and on the sahabas around the companions I'm sorry the um, sahabas around the prophet men around the companions I have, I have lots of books lots of resources on the major companions I cannot find a single one on Mughira ibn Shaba. it's hard to find them so that kind of leads me to think that maybe some of these things might have been true or who knows Allah knows best but Mughira ibn Shaba is a different kind of character at least according to the stories but we'll leave that alone for now, neither here nor there. Anyway, Murida ibn Shaba, he was excited to see his people's delegation, and so he knew that this was uh, something big. They were about to accept Islam. So he ran back into Medina to inform the Prophet. But as he ran into Medina, he also ran into Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr asked him what's all the excitement about. Murida ibn Shaba told him that Thaqif has sent a delegation, and Abu Bakr asked him for permission to be the first one to tell the prophet because this is good news now this has been a long-standing enemy and they thought they would probably have to eventually con confront them and eventually fight them there would be a long and bloody war maybe a long siege and now for them to come peacefully to the muslims 
this was something that was this is good news they this would avoid bloodshed avoid avoid a, a huge drawn out war and battle save some lives save property and uh basically overall a good thing so abu bakr he uh Mukhida did give him permission to tell the prophet abu bakr went back into the masjid to tell the prophet meanwhile he set up a tent outside the masjid for the two parties to meet basically the prophet on one side and the delegation from from the thaqif on the other side now the thaqif at this time they were still more interested in just obtaining a peace treaty rather than accepting islam so they weren't necessarily their heart they had just killed their own <laughs> their own brother their own uh relative basically their own clan member a tribe member uh ibn Masul. so this was more of a political thing that they were doing they were at this time at least most people in this delegation from what we understand they weren't really convinced about islam just yet they just wanted peace they wanted to try to normalize relations but anyway, the Prophet, he met with them. He offered them food, but the delegation, they refused to eat it. They seemed to have thought that might have been poisoned. And so they refused to eat it until the Prophet and one of his companions ate it. And then they got down to the negotiations and started going back and forth and, and discussing about the uh, conversions and what's going to happen. They asked the Prophet not to destroy their idol, Alat, for three years. Alat essentially means the goddess. And they also asked the prophet to recuse them from destroying the idol themselves. Now, this is this thing that while the prophet or the Muslims would not force the people to accept Islam, they would not allow idol worship to remain in the Muslim dominion either. So while they may not, once again, so they may not force the people of Thaqif to say to say the Kalima but at the same time they're going to have to get rid of that idol that idol that's, th that's there so then they asked the prophet for various various things to be excused from they asked to be excused from the prayers and they asked to be excused from the prohibition of adultery. They asked to be excused from the prohibition of riba or usury or interest. They asked to be excused from the from the prohibition of alcoholic drinks. But for each and every one of these single requests, well, most of them at least, the prophet refused to give them any of those things. He refused to let their idols stand for any period of time. He was. They asked for three months. They asked for. They asked, first they asked for three years. They don't destroy our idols for at least three years. I'm presuming from this that this was a thing of the Muslims. It was a thing of the Muslims actually. Uh, when the Muslims conquered a city, they'll go in and destroy the idols. We saw that when the when the prophet um, conquered Mecca, the idols were destroyed. And there are other stories I didn't get into in in um, this series, but there are other stories of Khalid ibn Walid and different military forces riding into um, a city that had, that had capitulated to the Muslims. And then first, one of the first things Khalid ibn Wali did was destroy their idols. And so they, they knew that this was a thing the Muslims did. And so they asked the Prophet to uh, delay that for three years. The Prophet refused. They brought it down to a couple of months. The Prophet still refused. He refused to give them any sort of time limit on that. But he did... This is the only concession he gave them. He did excuse them from having to destroy themselves. So I guess that this may have been a, some sort of mental hurdle for them. Who knows? But in any case, the prophet did excuse them from having to do it themselves. And we'll see how he took care of that in a, in a moment. 
And as far as them requesting to be excused from the prayer, the prophet said, well, there's no religion without prayer. So if either you're coming to this thing wholeheartedly or, or you're not. And essentially, they had to accept all the prophets. Um, I won't say demands. They had to come into Islam all the way. I presume that something convinced them of, of uh, to become Muslim and actually accept Islam. Initially, they were there only for political reasons, trying to get a peace treaty, but maybe over the time as they were in Medina, like the other tribes we mentioned earlier, they became convinced of Islam and they eventually converted, but they were still haggling over the particulars. Maybe they just liked the essence of Islam, la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, but all these little things, prayer and fasting and zakat and, and not drinking alcohol and no adultery, all these things they just weren't ready for, but they had to accept it. The prophet wouldn't really budge an inch on any of these things. So we mentioned this was during the Ramadan, uh, month of Ramadan. So after the Thaqif converted, they had to uh, basically fast the remainder of Ramadan. And so once they had converted, the Prophet sent, as, as we mentioned earlier, he did send a couple of companions there to destroy their idol. He sent Abu Sufyan and Mughira ibn Shu'bah, who we mentioned was from Ta'if in the first place. And Murida uh, ibn Shubah, he was from among the Thaqif clan. They returned to Ta'if with the delegation. And Murida set about destroying the idol himself. At first, he wanted Abu Sufyan to do it. But Abu Sufyan said, nope, these are your people. You go do it yourself. Abu Sufyan just sat, in, just sat there watching him Murida, while Murida climbed on top of the idol. And he began smashing it with a pickaxe. And while he was smashing it, his people gathered around him to protect him. Most likely, they remembered what happened to Orwa ibn Masud. And while he was destroying the idol, the women of the Thaqif, they started crying and, and wailing because uh, they saw their goddess being destroyed. Meanwhile, while they were crying and lamenting the whole thing, Abu Sufyan was congratulating them and welcoming them to, welcoming them to Islam. And after the idol was destroyed, Abu Sufyan took the treasure from the idol. My guess is that, as many pagan societies did, people donated things like beads or gold or precious gems and stuff like that to this stone idol. They presented it to them to to um, I don't know, presented it to the idol for whatever reason. Anyway, all these treasures from this idol, Abu Sufyan used this to pay off Urwa ibn Masud's uh, debts. As we mentioned, Urwa's son and his cousin, Urwa's son and cousin had accepted Islam and gone to Medina after he had been killed. And then they asked the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that once they saw that the delegation was heading back to uh, Ta'if and that they had accepted Islam, Urwa ibn Masud's son and cousin asked the Prophet to use the treasures from Alat, because they knew what was coming, use the, tre- the treasure from the destruction of this idol to pay off Urwa's debts, and the Prophet had instructed Abu Sufyan to do so. And so that will end our discussion on the delegations to Medina. In the next episode, inshallah, we will begin to discuss the Battle of Tabuk. So until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.